0: Blog Talk Radio Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, the most listened to internet radio show in the nonprofit sector, dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern-day fundraising success, and practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to the use of social media and how to make your nonprofit green. Guests on The Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share tips and trade secrets for nonprofit management and fundraising success. TED lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, TED and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on Radio. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart.
1: And welcome to this latest edition of The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is January twenty eighth, 2014, and I'm coming to you live from our nation's capital and the world headquarters of CAF America. We've got a big show for you today. Uh, As the announcer mentioned, this is a live call-in show, so do please consider calling in at 347-324-3080 when we get to our terrific Page 2 expert. Our Page 2 expert today uh, is Kirsten Bullock, and we're going to be talking about her new book, The Essential Fundraising Handbook for Small Nonprofits. You can also join us over in the search, or in the the uh, chat room rather, uh, and I do see a couple folks over there so you can ask your questions in the chat room. You can email me at tedhart at uh, or you can also ask questions using the hashtag on Twitter, hashtag Nonprofit Coach. As always here on The Nonprofit Coach, we start with Page 1 News. First up here on the Nonprofit Coach, in page one news, you can follow along at tedhart.com. Just click on radio links. Our first uh, notice today comes to us from the Council on Foundations in collaboration with BoardSource. Uh, we have over in the radio links today for you 10 things Every New Foundation Board Member Must Know. This is really a terrific uh, little booklet. Um, It's about 44 pages, and it covers everything from mission and values that you would expect, but it also covers legal responsibilities, fiduciary responsibilities, governance and management mentorship, evaluation and has a really terrific uh, resource section as well. So I encourage you uh, to check out the new book available uh, from the Council on Foundations, and it's available to you today in the radio links at tedhart.com. Just click on Radio Links, 10 Things Every New Foundation Board Member Should Know. You'll also find over in the radio links, 25 of the worst passwords of 2013. and We've posted this for you today uh, because the new year is a good time to refresh your online uh, security, and certainly pa- changing your passwords on a regular basis uh, is a good idea. Uh, but those who are out there looking to steal your information, uh, your identity, or your nonprofit organization's information uh, certainly are counting on the fact that you are going to use really stupid passwords and what we've provided to you today over in the radio links is a list of the twenty five worst passwords of two thousand thirteen it suggests that computer um, users do remain more concerned um, with remembering their passwords than making them tough for crooks to infiltrate Um, so just try to think of uh, a new approach it's really amazing that uh, people are still using one two three four five six uh that is uh the number 1 stupid password of 2013 um, try this one on the number 2 most stupid password for 2013 was the word password uh well done just uh give it away 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 how clever Adding seven and eight got right up there in number three. Um, number seven, 111, 111, one, really creative. Um, so now's the time to uh, be concerned about your online security and password, uh, making sure that uh, you're using some of the best uh, um uh, structure for your passwords um, and so there's also as if you go to the, the link today not only will you get the 25 no-no's uh, but also some tips on creating a better password uh, perhaps something that you can remember but crooks are not going to be able to steal your data quite as easily. Uh, next up here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach um, here on the radio links uh, we've got from the Chronicle of Philanthropy um, a new estimate of giving in 2000 Thirteen and a little bit of a controversy. Um, one of the uh, ways that you know that the philanthropic sector continues to grow is that there are different voices, different measurements for success. Charitable giving, um, according uh, to this report, um, is uh, grows by 13% last year, uh, and this is in conflict uh, or clashes with the Giving USA report, which has for decades been the most cited source for how much Americans donate. But the figure stunned some charity experts, who say it seems higher than what anecdotal reports suggest. It also attracted a slam from the authors of Giving USA, who say that the estimates are so inaccurate that they will skew Americans' understanding of the state of philanthropy. While Giving USA has not yet cir- circulated how much giving changed in 2013, the two organizations, and, and, uh, and in this case, uh, this is the Atlas of Giving which is uh, creating a bit of a controversy. They've been around for a few years. Uh, they have a very different methodology. And while the Giving USA uh, report um, said that uh, giving did uh, go up in 2012, the two organizations disagreed to the tune of about 50 billion dollars, and it's with a, uh, or that's billions with a B. And even here in Washington D.C., that does seem like some uh, a big discrepancy between the two. The Alice of Giving, on the other hand, uses a set of 65 formulations of demographic, economic, and market data to come up with its estimates. They claim to have 25 PhD-level mathematicians. Analysts and statisticians who are helping them develop, Um, the organization does not divulge anything about its methodology, uh, but there is a difference between how much they say is giving. So last year, they estimated that total giving in the United States was at $365.3 billion dollars. Giving USA pegged that number at a more modest 316 billion dollars here in the United States. So read all about it. You both uh, the announcement uh, from the Atlas of Giving group, but also uh, the Chronicle of Philanthropy is sharing uh, a little bit of the controversy between the two. Uh, both reports show that philanthropy is growing. Uh, and That's a good, good thing for all the nonprofits listening here to The Nonprofit Coach. Next, uh, over in the radio links today, you will find um, our, our a- annual catalog of our bookstore. Uh, in the bookstore, you'll find each of the books uh, available from myself and the group of authors that, uh, that I've worked with for years. Uh, so we do encourage you to make sure that your uh, uh, internal library is up-to-date with topics such as Internet Management for Nonprofits, people-to-people fundraising, social networking for nonprofits, the Nonprofit Internet Strategies, of course, fundraising on the Internet, and major donors finding big gifts in your database and online. That's available right in the radio links today as part of our annual bookstore. You'll also find over in the radio links today here on Page One News, uh, coming to us from our good friends over at GuideStar, New Year's resolutions for nonprofit organizations. And what they've outlined uh, for you are, four simple New Year's resolutions. Maybe uh, four is a good number that you can uh, actually accomplish. And, and these are just really good ideas. And I'm, I'm also very interested uh, in sort of relating this uh, to the work of Kirsten Bullock and, and how she may relate to some of these New Year's resolutions for small nonprofits. It starts off by saying, Uh, Thank you, donors and supporters. Take a fresh look at acknowledgement letters. This is a good time to do that, uh, and to make sure that you are also thanking uh, volunteers um, who help your organization. Um, It's also a good time at New Year's um, to check your records, make sure that they're up to date. New Year's is a good time to ensure that the organization's records are up to date as you start your fundraising year. Uh, with minutes from the board or trustee meetings and committee meetings and ensuring that board and trustee approvals are recorded for the prior year. So not just donor records but also internal corporate records. It's also a time to review your governing documents and I certainly agree with this. One of the things we've discussed on this show is the need for nonprofit organizations to be in compliance with their bylaws and to be in compliance you have to actually know what they say. So organizations should, I believe, at the beginning of each year, review their governing documents, um, take a look at their bylaws, for example, is the organization complying with the operating procedures stated in your bylaws, is it time for a change perhaps to align your bylaws with the organization's current operations, any changes may have legal implications, so you should consult an attorney prior to modifying your documents. Um, And then it's a good time to just remind everybody throughout your organization, volunteers, staff, and others, um, to stay focused on mission. The start of the year is a great time for the governing board and others to renew their commitment to the organization's mission. It's not just all about following the money but making sure that you are providing impact uh, on the mission that your organization uh, is um, slated to provide service to. And, or it may be a good time for the board to refocus the organization if you've drifted, but your service provision uh, is important to the community that you provide service to. So check it out. Uh, terrific New Year's resolutions coming to us from the GuideStar blog. Next up here on page one news, and then we're going to head right over to our page two expert today, comes to us from Social Bright. These are social solutions for nonprofits. and What they're providing to you today are three ways nonprofits should take advantage of video marketing, uh, and uh, those three are raise awareness of your nonprofit with more than 1.5 million nonprofit organizations in the United States standing out. Uh, obviously is uh, an important issue for everyone looking to raise money use video as a way to thank your donors to draw attention people matter Uh, fundraising is still a people to people business that's why one of my books is entitled people to people fundraising uh... and video is a terrific way for you to be able to do that and do it well Um, and also have a bit of fun you know don't take yourself so seriously Uh, videos should not be long in length they should be clever and interesting and, and add value Those are the ones who are going to get forwarded, and by forwarding that information, you're going to expand your audience. Uh, So all of that is available over in the radio links today uh, at tedhart.com. And with that, it's time to move on over to page two. It is a distinct pleasure to welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach Kirsten Bullock. Since 1995, Kirsten has worked with healthcare organizations, social service providers, national and local ministries, and international membership associations. Kirsten is uh, currently serving as the immediate past president of the Association of Fundraising Professionals Greater Louisville Chapter. She is an AFP master trainer, as I am, and is the author of Simple Steps to Growing Your Donors. And also you'll find in the radio links today a direct link to be able to purchase her new book, The Essential Fundraising Handbook for Small Nonprofits, which will be the topic of our conversation today. When not working to equip to empower people in the nonprofit sector, Kirsten Sculps is attempting to learn to speak Danish, which I can only imagine how difficult that may be, and enjoys living in the beautiful highlands of Louisville, Kentucky. Welcome here to the nonprofit coach, Kirsten Bullock.
2: Great. Thank you, Ted. It's good to be here.
1: Kirsten, it's wonderful to uh, to have you here uh with us on the show. Uh this is really a, a terrific book that uh, that you created. I really want to jump into some of your best tips. Uh you've got an array of authors. Um, So you're essentially an uh, an author and editor of Pulling This Book Together, but you've got a lot of um, experts that uh, have come together uh, to provide uh, the Essential Fundraising Handbook for small nonprofits. But why don't we start off with a little bit more about you, uh, who you are, and what it is that you do.
2: Well, thank you for asking that. Um, Sometimes we tend to jump into content and we don't really get to know the people that we're hearing from. So I appreciate your you're asking that. Well, my first job out of college was being the grants manager at a hospital foundation. And while I was working there, my brother, who had muscular dystrophy, he started a nonprofit. And it was to help adults with physical disabilities learn how to live independently, share resources. It was, it was a great idea that made so much financial sense. Um, Cheaper than a nursing home and a great way for people like my brother who were, who's mentally able but not able-bodied to be independent. And there was a lot of momentum when we started. We recruited some board members, applied for 501c3 status, started taking donations. But I think with a lot of small nonprofits, after that initial push, reality really set in. There were just a few people, a lot of work to get done. And it was there when I first became really clearly conscious of the significant differences between the hospital system where I was working at during the day and the operations of a small startup nonprofit. So looking back, I think that's probably the moment when I decided that whatever I did, I wanted to make sure that I could help small nonprofits be successful. So fast forward nineteen years and I'm I'm really living that out by offering trainings and resources for small nonprofits through the Nonprofit Academy, and now to have worked with all of our great partners on the Essential Fundraising Handbook, a great group of nonprofit leaders, it feels like I'm really living out my dream.
1: Well, it, and it's a, it's an important focus that uh, that you're giving, and has certainly been a big focus of this show um, in helping nonprofits of all sizes, both large and small. But has has often been a bit of a focus for us uh, in that small nonprofits um, lack the resources to be able to have the expertise available to them. Um, to be able to accomplish the things that they must for good management, for good outreach, and therefore successful fundraising. In your book, you've specifically focused on the aspect of running a strong nonprofit and the need for funding and community support. Um, and the essentials of fundraising, so why don't we get into the the structure of the the book itself in terms of um, how people can best learn from the incredible expertise that uh, that you bring together uh, for um, uh, in this book because um, you have brought together a terrific array of um, of authors um, who bring a great deal of experience, but you've broken. The book down into chapter areas, and certainly vision is important. And you heard in the page one news the the um, New Year's resolutions for nonprofits. And so I'm wondering if we might sort of build that bridge first in terms of the um, New Year's resolutions that we talked about in page one that came from the GuideStar blog um, to preparing your organization to be able to raise money. I mean, before we start talking about actually how you do it back it up to what needs to be in place before you can successfully even start soliciting.
2: Great. Well, before I get into that, I do want to just mention that this was the book was a group project from the beginning. There were a group of us and we were meeting on a regular basis and somebody said, hey, you know, we should put what we know into a book. And um, so at that point I became the coordinator for the project, um, so it wasn't my brainchild. It was really all the authors came together and said, "You know, we need to get this information out into the world." So, um, I just want to make it clear that it was and continues to be a real group project.
1: Absolutely, and we'll mention specific authors as we sort of work through some <laughs> of the chapters and some of the expertise that you brought together.
2: Right. I liked the New Year's resolutions that you mapped out, focusing on mission. It's always a great time to do that, because if we don't have a big idea, if we don't have a big vision that people can latch on to, they're not going to support us. We need to have that big idea. I was just listening to a radio show yesterday. I think it was Kay Sprinkle Grace who was talking about
1: it. Oh, one of the podcasts on the it. show.
2: Yes. Yeah, yeah. She yeah she Kay's always perfect. About- she
1: does our holiday show every year, so yeah, that's mm-hmm. a big topic from her as well.
2: And she was talking about having an idea that was big enough to contribute to. So when we go to our donors and just ask for the same old, same old, they're gonna give the same old, same old unless we give them a bigger vision to latch onto and um focusing on mission is a and, and I'm, I'm glad you
1: brought up Kay's, Kay's approach because I think it dovetails so nicely into um some of what's uh in your book is this notion of worthiness of giving because I think, you know, particularly small nonprofits maybe a small group of people, very well-meaning, but the general sense of it is, first of all, we're charitable, second of all, we're good people, so people will give. And is is need enough?
2: That's I my question to you. Is, okay. I don't think need is quite enough. It does need to have some sort of vision, some sort of big idea, some sort of impact. And in... In Sandy's chapter, she talks a lot about vision and that big idea, and it needs to move beyond we're good people and we're doing good work. That's important, but what's going to inspire bigger donors and what's going to ins- inspire the next generation of donors, really, is having that bigger mission. When we were focusing just on the, the builder generation to raise money from, that message worked. But now with younger emerging um, populations of people giving, boomers and below, we are looking for more impact. We are looking for more results. So and then having that's, sort the division,
1: that. I mean, that's sort of the division. I mean, sort of, we're now talking about the primary donor population now having different expectations than perhaps um, um, earlier generations might have had.
2: Right. And, and what do you Bloomering think about that when it run. comes to
1: a small nonprofit? I mean, how do they... How do they bridge that gap again with limited resources and, and limited capacity?
2: It's by taking a good, honest look at where they are where they're at and what it is that they're able to accomplish with the resources that they have, but then assessing what are we working on that maybe could go away so that we can focus on some of the more important type issues. There's there's a few major things that organizations need to take the time to put the infrastructure together for having those systems, things, things like a donor management system as soon as they're able to afford it, to be able to track donor data, be able to make sure that we're going back to those people again and again asking for support. So having the systems and the infrastructure in place, having the leadership of the board in place. And that is a big issue that I think a lot of small organizations struggle with because when they're starting, they just say, oh, well, I'll go out and ask my friends. But as an organization grows, they need to evolve to that next step of saying, okay, who are the community leaders and who can help this organization go to the next level? Who's already invested in this cause and might be interested in being a part of it? Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's scary. Well, this scary and and boy, to have, you, exactly.
1: have you brought up a big topic here and that, that, that topic of, of being focused and remaining focused because I think, f- particularly for small nonprofits, um, a lot of times they can be in a position of sort of following the money. Um, and, and sometimes it, it, it takes the, the strong leadership and vision for the organization to actually say no to some money to have the time and resources to pursue other money, and that can be really scary.
2: Yes, it can be.
1: How do because you do that? How do you advise? How do you advise that they, they gain that kind of focus or be able to make those kinds of appropriate decisions?
2: I think it goes back to what you were saying during the, the news and the New Year's resolutions. It's focus on the mission and be really specific, figure out what it is that the organization wants to accomplish, what the vision is, what the big idea is, and then focus on that. So if their goal is to eliminate hunger in their community, what is it that they can do that will help make that happen? What's realistic within the confines of the resources resources that they have? Who can they partner with out in the community who might also be able to help make that happen? But when we look at a big idea, it changes the way that we operate because we can no longer do business as usual if we're trying to make a big impact and a big change. We need to have new ways of doing things to accomplish bigger um, things that are going to have more of an impact on the community.
1: Right. And talk, talk to us a little bit more about, while we're sort of focusing on sort of organizational structure and, and vision, the, the power of collaboration, particularly when you're a small Nonprofit, as, as we sort of now start, you know, moving the discussion towards fundraising, what's the the value of collaboration.
2: The value of collaboration is huge, with especially with younger donors who are who are giving and being a part of organizations, or people who are volunteering, being on boards, whatever way they're getting involved with the with the nonprofit. We want to see coordinated efforts, I think, speaking from the donor board member side of the table. We want to see coordinated effort. We want to make sure that people can have the impact that they're going to have. And if it's a small organization coming in, maybe they have two or three staff people. Maybe they've been around for a while, but not really having a huge impact giving good services, don't get me wrong. They're giving great services and and things that the community really needs. But as far as making a big change, their focus just hasn't been in that area.
1: And doesn't it come down to that notion of of impact in terms of looking for appropriate partners? Because I think a lot of particularly smaller nonprofits, again, capacity, the ability to find partners and and to be able to manage partners, which is, is a skill in and of itself, Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, I find smaller nonprofits feel that we have to do everything because it's us, it's our brand. It's you know, and if we if we partner with someone else, then you know maybe they're the bigger dog than than we are, or maybe it dilutes our mission. And so, having that vision of seeing how that works, I think, is really a challenge for a lot of small nonprofits in, in particular, isn't it?
2: It is, and because people are, are looking at that and they're thinking, oh well. If I partner with these other people, will I lose donors? Will I lose um, board members? But there's a lot of strength that comes in that partnership. There's a louder voice that's speaking in the community, and so if there's a bigger voice speaking, they're all communicating the same message. It's much more likely that it will be heard by the community. So by coming together, it's possible to have a much bigger impact. And now, How do you, how do you bridge that
1: gap for, for leadership, either uh, paid staff if they have paid staff or volunteer and board, board members um, in terms of how, when you have a small budget, small staff, um, how do you seek, find, and, and, and successfully manage the kind of collaboration that can lead to
2: stronger impact? Well, it needs to become a priority. And there's, as we know, with small nonprofits, there's a lot of different things clamoring for attention. There's a lot of things that need to get done. But by having systems in place and being much more intentional about where we spend time, then we can carve out that time and make those partnerships happen. So time is a barrier, trying to um, think differently about the way that we get things done and working with partners. And a lot of times it's a matter of just tipping your toe in the water and testing it and realizing, wow, this isn't this isn't so bad. And then it leads the way to greater partnership. In Central Florida I was part of a consortium of um, in the founding group of a consortium of, of healthcare leaders who wanted to come together to be able to be a better advocate for the uninsured. Now this was goodness, 15 years ago or so. But by working together, they were able to negotiate contracts better. They were getting higher reimbursement rates. There were a lot of things that came about um, positive impacts of that. So the more we can communicate those positive success stories, I think the more likely people will to test it. And if they test it, I think they'll like it and want to do more of it.
1: Mm-hmm. And what's the role of, of board members? I mean, it, does, it, does it seem that Board members are, in some ways, even more vital to small nonprofits because, in some ways, they they can become sort of staff adjuncts. If there's any paid staff at all,
2: right? And uh, several of the organizations that I've talked with and worked with over the last few years, they are all volunteer-run, and so the board member, the board, becomes a working board where they're working hands-on on projects, they're, they're getting things done. But that's an evolution issue as much as anything else, because as the organization grows, hires a staff person, the role of the board needs to change and become a little less hands-on, more focused on governance, and also on building relationships in the community for the organization. So it's just as important, but for two different reasons.
1: Right, right. So um, how, how do you um, now take the infrastructure and the volunteerism and bring it forward to um, fundraising?
2: The basis for it with fundraising, having a successful, having a, a board that's in place, with leadership, people who are willing to go out and build partnerships on behalf of the organization. It's essential in in being able to raise money. So um, in getting into the book, it's broken down into, of course, the areas that you were talking about. Um, We have a section talking about grants and the important things of that. But like you said, board engagement is... Certainly
1: vital and some of the, uh, the tough decisions, the to question, right, well, but some of the tough decisions that, that you were talking about before then follow into making tough decisions about fundraising because you know, is it grant uh, grant writing, is it major gifts, and you cover all of this in the book, is it special events um, is, is it direct mail? I mean, how when you're a small organization with limited resources, do you begin and sort of grow that program when you look at larger organizations like you were mentioning? medical centers and university where they have a very robust strong uh, program that covers the waterfront um, you may feel that you have to have all the bells and whistles as well
2: right there is that temptation and that's where focus comes in is so important and being willing to say okay these are the three top things that we're going to focus on right now and if an organization is just getting started then they're going to pick one. And the one that they pick is going to change depending on what kind of resources that they have. If they have an engaged board who are active in the community, who have connections, engagements, that's going to be the logical first step to go Go down that route is engaging the board more fully in fundraising. If they have a program that's built on a national model, there's some credibility for it. Maybe it's been running a few years um, Maybe, maybe grants would be the best way to go. So it really right. depends on what the resources are, what the programs are, who the people are who are engaged already, mm-hmm. if there's giving history already.
1: Right. And sort of the, the natural approach might be, you know, sort of following the concentric circle approach where you mentioned earlier, um, small nonprofits starting to raise money, family and friends, those who are close by, mm-hmm you know, who who know you, so the trust factor is already there, the interest in supporting the mission because it's you, so it's sort of the, the cult of personality. You know, I know this person, so I'm going to give there. But then moving out beyond those people, who do they know? What boards of directors do they sit on perhaps a foundation or a corporate uh, gift is possible? So it becomes that, that true networking of who knows whom, particularly, um, for small nonprofits, right? So the the way your, your fundraising grows is, is perhaps maybe a little bit more organic and a little bit less textbook.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think that sums up what I was saying pretty well that okay. it depends on. And for a micro-organization as they're just getting started, definitely personal networks and then expanding from there. But making sure to be able to manage the data. And then as the organization grows, being able to look at what other things might work for us. And that's one of the areas where the book really comes in. If an organization is saying, okay, I've got the board engaged, I've got special events done, what else should I do to make my organization stronger? Yeah. And then reading through the other chapters and saying, oh, yeah, we can do that. And, And then picking the next area to focus on but so, definitely so not you, trying to do everything at once just focusing to do on one so for
1: you is it is it is it true or am i putting words in your mouth that sort of a natural progression is sort of that direct family and friends giving and then then perhaps sort of a natural progression is into special events is that for a lot of smaller nonprofits is that sort of a natural progression
2: that is the typical progression yes
1: okay. So what I'd like to do is we're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, um, I just sort of want to ask you to focus and walk us through some of the advice and the authors that you have in the book of sort of I guess we'll say life after special events. So, um, you know what okay. what comes after you have um, successfully started to uh, raise money in uh, in special events. And we'll be right back after this break. if you haven't done so already make sure that you sign up for our weekly newsletter Uh, For the Nonprofit Coach, you can sign up at tedhart.com. You'll find that uh, today, of course, our page two expert is Kirsten Bullock. Uh, After today, we will have a two-week hiatus, uh, which is a terrific time for you to catch up on past podcasts of the Nonprofit Coach, of which we have several hundred uh, past podcasts of the very best in thought leaders in the nonprofit sector. We will be back live here on the Nonprofit Coach February 18th at 12 noon Eastern uh, with uh, Craig Beda from Cone Communication. So I wanted to uh, thank you very much for joining us um, here on the Nonprofit Coach. We're going to have a, a quick notice uh, from Google, and then we'll be back uh, with our Page 2 expert.
3: When you have a great idea and need to work with others to bring it to life, how do you do it? Sometimes it's tough because the people you work with are in different places with different schedules using different devices Google Apps lets you bring ideas to life with others. Here's how. Start with email that offers more. Gmail does more than send and receive emails. It connects people and lets you chat instantly while viewing a snapshot of your team's relevant activities and access to everything they shared with you with google docs there's only one version for everyone to work on share easily with the right people without email attachments or compatibility hassles and work together on the same docs at the same time in a way that simply makes sense edit and interact easily with integrated social commenting Google Calendar makes it easy to share schedules and find times to meet and schedule or update meetings with a few clicks everyone can't be in the same place at the same time but Google Apps lets you work together from any place With multi-way video chat, you'll feel like you're all in the same room. While screen sharing and integration with Google Docs lets you work with more people from anywhere, on any device, even on your mobile phone or tablet. Work with any team, at any time, from any place, on any device. Google Apps. Work in the future, today. To learn more, go to google.com slash apps.
0: Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And we're live
1: here on the Nonprofit Coach. We're here with uh, Kirsten Bullock, AFP Master Trainer and the author-editor of the Essential Fundraising Handbook for Small Nonprofits. So, uh, Kirsten, um, before we went on break, um, you were talking about sort of this organic national, uh, natural progression uh, for nonprofits. Um, talk us, uh, share with us some of the, the author expertise and your expertise on life after special events.
2: Okay, and I appreciate you asking the question that way because for a lot of organizations, they get to the point where they're having all these special events and all of a sudden all they're doing is running event after event after event and the money never seems to get ahead. And one of the big reasons for that, we know special events, we often don't account for the full cost that goes into them. So if your organization is doing special events, make sure that you're factoring in the cost of staff to put those events together and make sure that on reports that you provide people, especially the board, if they're making decisions about what events you do or don't do, that it maps out how much those cost and the full number, not the, not just the, the hard cost. Right. So and
1: and, and I've, as I've shared, as, as my listeners know, I, you know, I I always sort of start off talking about special events with with a a little bit of a disclaimer because um, I'm not anti-special events, but I'm not uh, a big proponent of jumping to special events exactly for the reason that you just brought up is that, you know, while it seems like the way to raise money, often um, nonprofit organizations don't take into account the full expense and just how they're bogging down the organization. If they took that same time and effort and put it into a major gift campaign or a grants writing campaign, they, they may ultimately benefit the organization stronger so let me just just ask you to sort of reflect on on a perspective that i have and i could be completely wrong so tell me if i'm completely wrong but i think a measure of a a successful um special event is not just the the money that's raised um because again we don't often account for it correctly but the special events should be 50% marketing communications and donor appreciation um, and prospecting and 50% about the fundraising. It's not just about the bottom line money. Would you agree with that or is that not quite
0: right?
2: I would think for some events that's true. For some events they are so successfully raising so much money that if you try to do too much of something else it might throw other things off.
1: Might dilute it. Might dilute it.
2: Right. For new events, definitely. Definitely okay. having both an awareness and the um, – but for established events, they've been going a long time, raising a lot of money. Um, and the Louisville market has a lot of really good, successful, long-running events that you probably wouldn't want to change much. But each, right. each area is a little bit different. So but for small
1: nonprofits, like you might not suggest lots of multiple special events because it could take you mm-hmm. off from a, an overall mature fundraising plan.
2: right. Right.
1: So talk to us about that mature fundraising plan. Where do we go next and how do we do it?
2: Okay. The first step is definitely identifying the first two or three things to focus on and spending some time doing those well and focusing in on building relationships with donors rather than just trying to get the money, focusing on the mission that came up during our the New Year's resolution talk at the beginning. Hmm. So really working on growing, helping people grow in relationship with the organization and the mission. Um, so building relationships and the focus on people rather than money because nobody wants to feel like an ATM. Um, and that includes that if that can increase donor retention, then we know by the Bloomerang um, information that they've been pushing out that um, that can have a huge impact on the amount of money that an organizations able to raise, um, mm-hmm. raise. so making sure to acknowledge thank yous, um, acknowledge gifts quickly and on a consistent basis, have that be part of a system so it just happens automatically. That's an area that just getting those thank you letters out quickly for small organizations, that could be a huge step in and of itself. Great it, writing. doesn't... It, Right, okay.
1: grant writing. So so then we we move into that area. So is it is it annual giving and, and major gifts? And then take a look at, you know, grants. Because my, my concern is that a lot of board of directors, you know, look around at other organizations and they're like, oh, well, that organization got big money from that foundation, so go get ours. And mm-hmm. that's not quite how it, it happens.
2: It doesn't, no, no.
1: So how does it and happen? The-
2: It happens through a lot of research, knowing specifically what your program is, having good outcomes, measurements, being able to succinctly say this is um, what we're doing, this is why we're doing it, and this is the impact we're making. Um, And once you have that clear program plan developed and once you're able to identify which foundations in your area might have interest in specifically the type of project that you're working on, then you can move from there. And the next step with grants is... Hopefully, you can look to your board and see if anybody on your board is connected with anybody who's connected with mm-hmm. the foundation. So, making those linkages. So There's again, a lot of it,
1: it's, research. it's that a that lot can... about yeah about personal relationships, and it's still even though it might be foundations or corporations, um, it's still kind of still people to people, right?
2: Right. Absolutely.
1: So, in in and your and having in, to support it. Yeah, in your in your book, in the way that you organized uh, the book, which I often you know think you know there's a very specific reason why you know your group of authors and you as an editor decided to put the book together in the way that that you have. Um, you specifically talk about um, you know, winning foundation grants sort of midway through the book, but then you wrap up the book. You bring us um, to two two uh, final aspects of, uh, of the book, and that is major gift fundraising and then resources from the Nonprofit Academy. So in the time left, I want to talk about those two. Major gift fundraising, it appears you sort of rank higher. Um, and is that because it's over time more renewable um, than perhaps foundation support?
2: It's certainly more renewable than foundation support. With foundations, if they give three years in a row, usually there's a lot of organ, a lot of foundations that will require that you take a year off. So, or they might not give more than one year in a row. So, with major gift donors, yes, they're going to give more consistently over time.
1: And isn't that a problem for uh, particularly small nonprofits? They they don't quite get the where. Um, foundation support fits because if they get that they they may spend it almost as annual giving they they grow accustomed to it even over a couple of years, and then the organization you know is sort of in crisis at the thought of losing a grant that they once had
2: mm-hmm. and that's where it does become important to build additional revenue streams so that if one of them goes away you 'll still have some other things that are that are going on. So more a more mature
1: fundraising plan. Mm-hmm.
2: Right. So
1: I, I sort of jumped in on, on sort of the relationship between foundation grants and major gift fundraising. I want to give you time to to really outfit the expertise of of, uh, of this you know terrific book that you have, the Essential Fundraising Handbook for Small Nonprofits. We do have a link in the radio links today uh, directly to the book so people can purchase that today help us round out the expertise around major gift fundraising. Is it super complicated? Um, how do you get into that area if you're used to getting $25, 50 from grants from you know, people fairly close to you? How do you get there?
2: Great question. And Mark um, lays that out. Mark Pittman wrote this particular chapter. And what he does is focus on the acronym REAL to lay out how to set up a major gift program so R being researching your cause and your prospects. So researching your cause, know who your prospects are, being very specific. So it's not just putting an announcement in the newspaper, hey, we're looking for major donors. It's more about specifically identifying people and reaching out to them. So e for engaging your prospect, getting them involved in the organization a little while. Most people don't jump from awareness into making a gift. Usually there's a get to know you period in the middle. So leaving time for that, for really building those relationships. A, for asking. We know that 90% of people, when they're asked why they gave, um, one of the reasons that they give is because they were asked. And so we need to ask. And the other thing about asking, too, is if we don't ask, people assume that the money part is all taken care of. So we need to make sure to be really clear when we're asking for money that it's, they're helping this cause happen, but just be really clear with the ask.
1: And and sometimes people are kind of a little squeamish about that. So how do you get over that when you don't have a big staff? Maybe um, you've got a few board members, um, you know, sort of all hands on deck. How do you accomplish that?
2: Well, with fundraising, only about 10% is making the ask. The other 90% is a combination of um, cultivating the person as you're getting to know them and then the stewardship and follow-up after they've made a gift. So, so only say, 10 that, 10% say that again of because I
1: think, I think that's a very powerful statement that you just made because I, I think for a lot of folks, they, they get so focused on the ask, it feels like it's 90%. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, but the ask is only 10%. So we've got 45% of, of getting to know people and then we've got 45% of saying thank you, and stewarding the gift after the fact. So only 10% of it's on asking. So if we can find one board member, if we can find one other person who will work with us on asking for a gift, the fun thing about that is that one person, if we can set them up for success, so we only send them out when we know that they're going to get a yes on Mm -hmm. this ask, or we're 90% sure that they're going to get a yes on this ask, Mm -hmm. we go out with them, let them make an ask. Mm -hmm. They get a yes, the excitement that comes yes. from that and their enthusiasm is so contagious. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they come back to a board meeting, they start talking about, wow, this was so much fun, because it's not just about asking for money. It's about helping somebody get in touch with that desire that they have deep down to change the world and impact the world in a powerful way. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah, all so, of us... You're
1: so right in, in that you know, fundraising and certainly making the ask is a learned activity. Um, and building confidence is one of the best things that you can do if you really want someone to help you.
2: Yeah. And we can't expect everybody to say, oh, yes, I'm going to go ask for money. It's, it's, it is learned, and it takes time, and we need to be patient with people and give them tools, resources, a little bit of handholding, really, mm-hmm. to help them get through that.
1: Mm-hmm. So and rounding then, out the, the rest of what Mark has to say in his chapter.
2: Right. L is for loving. Um, And he points out that saying thank you can go a long ways to getting ongoing support, to getting that renewable gift. People talk about sustainable fundraising, but usually they're talking about things like selling products or, um, or things like that. But really, sustainable fundraising can be having a strong major gift program where you've built strong relationships with people and they become ongoing supporters.
1: In your uh, in your book, um, I think it's uh, Pamela Groh, and, and by the way, thank you for sending me the advanced copy of the book. Um, she shares some really, truly um, scary statistics, and I, I, I don't think they're shared to be scary, but um, kind of working through the fact that uh, Penelope Burke, who's been uh, one of our experts on the show several times, she's on the show at least once a year, always one of the highest-rated shows, uh, here on The Nonprofit Coach, um, she says 90% of donors who start contributing to a particular cause stop giving by the fifth renewal request. Um, and, and it doesn't get any prettier when Adrian Sargent, who's also been uh, an expert here on the show, notes that 8 out of 10 first-time donors get ready, do not make a second gift. So how do you build momentum?
2: That's by loving your donors. It's by letting them know that their gift is important, their gift matters, that knowing, letting, and Penelope Burke talks about this in her her resources and donor-centered fundraising. It's letting people know that their gift was received, letting them know a little bit about how it was used, and saying thank you. And those three things are essential. And a lot of small nonprofits, they don't think that they have the time to work on those things. So they're constantly on this treadmill of trying to find new donors. So my advice in relationship to that is to take a breath and really start to focus in on on keeping involved and getting to know your current donors so that you can build those relationships with them and have them give over time. And with small nonprofits, sure, it's a smaller budget, but there's fewer donors too. So I think it's a huge opportunity for small organizations, if we can engage our board members in sending thank you calls or, or mm-hmm. making thank you calls or sending thank you notes,
1: and there's what a lot of really powerful to thing to do. I, I really want to accentuate what you just said. Uh, when I was uh, vice president uh, at a hospital in uh, in Rochester, uh, New York, we raised money to uh, build um, a, a new pavilion um, at uh, at the hospital, and, uh, and of course, you know, the fact that I was involved, we did everything impeccably, except that we really didn't. Um, and I wanted to just share the story um, which I've shared before um, uh, to accentuate the value of board member thank you calls because it can go to building confidence because they're not making an ask but they're connecting to donors. And in this particular case we had a $100,000 donor. Um, who had made the the gift and we had sent her a thank you but then we got a, a thank you call made by one of our board members and she was not happy she was it turns out that when the call was made uh she opened up to the board member that she was not happy with the way that recognition had been um, uh handled there was a there's a miscommunication there and i was so thankful for that opportunity because here's someone who you know made it a nice size gift probably you know would have told everybody around her, anybody within earshot, of how she was unhappy. It would have affected other donors, and we probably would not have raised as much money as we did if we hadn't sort of gotten ahead of that. And I doubt she would have picked up the phone and told me that she was unhappy. But for the board member, she felt quite comfortable with that. We were able to get in touch with her and, and correct the issue. And that's a real value that board members can bring uh, in that kind of donor relation.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, Absolutely.
1: What are some other creative ways that board members can be involved in the fundraising program?
2: Definitely as you mentioned those thank you calls, sending thank you notes, looking through donor lists if they know somebody, maybe becoming personally engaged with them. There's a group here in in Louisville called Cabbage Patch and they have a portfolio system. So each board member is assigned um, I think seven to 10, somewhere Mm. in there. Donors to their organization, and I think major gift for their organization is considered $500. Okay. Pull that out. So with those, with their own portfolio, they keep in touch. They send information about updates about what's going on. So it becomes a personal relationship between them and the donor. So new and donors I think are sort of assigned
1: in... Into a portfolio, what what um, would would you say is sort of an average or appropriate portfolio for a board member?
2: I would say seven to ten, maximum.
1: What what a great what a great idea! So again, this is at the you know for them it's five hundred for someone else it could be five thousand or fifty thousand, depending on how you organize your your uh, fundraising program. But it puts more people into the relationship mix. Right. And they've seen a lot of value from that.
2: They have. They've been doing it now. If I understand right, at least five years, probably a lot longer than that.
1: That's terrific, Kirsten. We I, I'm always uh, watching the time, and, and uh, you know we're down to our, our last uh, few minutes here on the show. I want to ask you to sort of summarize um, the uh, the terrific work of uh, of this book. Um uh, you've got a number of uh, of contributors here uh, to the book. Betsy Baker, uh, yourself of course, Gail Gifford, Pamela Grow, Lori uh, Laurie, uh Jacobit, Jacobit? Is that right? Jacobit? Jacobit. Yeah, Jacob uh, Mark Pittman, who's been on the show, Sandy Reese, who's been on the show, um, and uh, Sherry Truller is uh, in this book as well. So really, it's a who's who of experts, um, certainly folks who have a lot of expertise with small nonprofits. So can you sort of summarize that for us and then make sure that you tell my listeners how they can reach you?
2: Okay. Well, one of the big areas that we focus on is focus, being able to focus in on the top two to three things that are working for you. Don't try to do everything. Just pick up the things that are going to be able to work best for you. So really focus. Be intentional about what you're working on. It's really easy to try to do everything at once. Just be really intentional about the few things that you're going to focus on and plan. And think bigger, because people want to change the world. They want to be part of something that's bigger than themselves. So if we can think bigger, we can give people something to be a part of that they're going to get really excited about. And excited means, means more money. And, and
1: presumably you don't want people to feel overwhelmed.
2: Right. Oh, absolutely. So it's, we don't expect somebody to pick up this book and say, okay, we're going to implement everything this year. Just pick a couple. And a few years ago I saw Beth Cantor speak and she was talking about social media and how to get started in that. And it was so freeing when she said, you know, just pick one area, spend a few months on it, get to know it well, get to do it well, and then add something else in. Don't be overwhelmed. Don't try to don't, do everything. Don't feel else. like
1: you have to have everything That'll done. That's it, it. the same thing about essential fundraising. Terrific book that, uh, that, that you've developed here. And as you said, it's, it's more of a handbook uh, than, than it is a program guide. Um, So for the average nonprofit who gets a copy of this book, and they certainly should, um, how long do you think it would take them to be able to implement the recommendations? Is this a two- to three-year process?
2: Yeah, I think two- to three years is realistic.
1: Terrific, terrific. And Kirsten, how can my uh, listeners uh, get a hold of you?
2: You can reach me through the Nonprofit Academy. That's www.thenonprofitacademy.com or email me at kirsten, K-I-R-S-T-E-N, at bullockconsulting.net. And you can find the book on Amazon or most of the authors are offering it on their own web pages as well. And we invite you to join us on February 18th for a kickoff gathering that we'll be holding. There'll be more information coming out about that soon. Terrific, um, terrific.
1: Make sure that we get that information. We'd be happy uh, to share that with folks. We do have a direct link to your book on Amazon in the radio links today at tedhart.com. Kirsten Bullock, thank you so much for being my guest here on The Nonprofit Coach.
2: Thank you, Ted, and thanks to all the small nonprofits who do so much great work.
1: They sure do. Don't forget, we'll have a two-week hiatus. Uh, This show will be back live on February 18th with good folks from Cone Communications. This has been The Nonprofit Coach. You've
0: been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach.